Amen. Aren't you thankful we worship a resurrected king, not a dead king, not a dead God, a God who's alive forevermore. We're thankful you're here with us this morning. We welcome our Lexington campus. We're thankful for you there and all those joining us online. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 996. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're here, if you're in Lexington without a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church. You want to make sure you have a copy of God's Word. And we're going to be looking right at a text together this morning. As you turn there, uh, some exciting things coming up. Don't forget to grab your Advent devotional calendar in the lobby. The Advent devotional guide will kind of guide you into Christmas for weeks. Our teaching team put together the devotions and uh, the readings and some questions and answers. So we hope you'll grab that uh, and that will be an encouragement to you. You can grab that on our app, on our website, or in the lobby at, at every campus. Also, we have coming up December 7th and 8th, our indoor baptism. Not outdoor baptism, indoor baptism. And we're excited about this, the opportunity for people to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism is commended by Christ as a picture of what he's done in your life. And so if you would like to publicly declare your faith, to take the simple step of saying, you know, I want to I want to show people that I'm committed to Jesus. We hope that you'll join us for our baptism December 7th and 8th across all campuses. You can sign up at Next Steps. We'd love to get you connected, and uh, we're excited for those who have already signed up to say we want to publicly declare our inward faith in Jesus Christ, to picture the death burial, and resurrection. And then lastly, don't forget, adopt a child season. Uh, it's amazing. We get the chance to serve over a thousand people in our community, uh, families and kids that don't get to have a Christmas the way many of us enjoy. And so we have 550 kids through our campuses. And so we would love, we have about 100 left here at Park Avenue, some left in Lexington as well as Shelby. And so grab those. We'd love for you to be a part of that. It is a, it is a a, an amazing opportunity to reach out into the needs of our community, to have some great conversations with people and encourage kids at a time where, where they're looking around wondering, where, where is their hope? Where is, their, uh, where is the excitement of the season? And so we get a chance to talk about that, but also to give them some gifts to say we love you and we care about you. And so we love uh, to be able to love our community well, love our city well. So get a part of it. Be a part of what God is doing through Adopt a Child. Stop at the tables in the lobbies. Second Timothy chapter 3, we're in this series that we have called legacy. And the question we really are asking is, how do we live a legacy, and then how do we leave a legacy? What does it look like to live the legacy of Christ, and then to leave a legacy for Christ? And we, we've seen that Paul, the apostle, is writing his last will and testaments. Paul is sitting in a hole in the ground in a prison, where there's a little air bubble at the top that he can breathe from and get food from, but he's in the ground and he knows his death is imminent. And so he writes this last letter to his young spiritual son, his young protege, Pastor Timothy. Timothy followed him on his missionary journeys and now finds himself as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And so Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, in spite of my arrest, in spite of the fact that I'm going to die, in spite of the fact that persecution is rising, in spite of the fact the church is not going so well, I want to encourage you to keep going. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. In chapter one, he says, fan the flame of the gift of God in you. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. At the end of chapter one, he says, listen, don't throw in the towel. Don't let fear or fatigue or frustration overwhelm you. 
But keep going, endure, keep going strong. Now last week we came to chapter three. In chapter three, there's a shift that happens where, where Paul stops really talking just about character and really dives into talking about conviction because character is built on what our convictions are. And so he begins to go a little bit deeper about what's happening in the heart of man. And he says, in the last days, there will be those who come who are lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. They're, they're gonna be uh, people that are, are shameful in their approach, people that are prideful and arrogant, people that are slanderous and gossip. And we see, as we looked last week, that we are in those last days. That continues to increase. That there are no more signs left to say that the Lord is going to return. That's not meant to scare us. That's meant to motivate us. That's meant to encourage us that Christ is going to have the last word over all the evil that we see on the world. And so that's why Paul writes that to Timothy and said, listen, Timothy, this is a time to get your convictions firmed. Now, as we've been journeying through this up until this point, he's kind of been hitting command after command after command after command. And now we're going to see the motivation behind those commands. You know, usually we give the motivation before we give a command, don't we? Well, here's why this is important. Now listen, this is, here's why this is important. And then we give the command. Well, in, in Paul's writings, he usually gives the command and then comes back and says, here's how you do this. And that's exactly what he's going to do here in chapter 3. He's going to give us how do we do this? How do we endure? How do we keep going in times of difficulty? Now, I remember when we first moved here to uh, the Mansfield area, uh, it was five years ago. It's hard to believe. It seems like yesterday, and yet it seems like it's been so long. Like, it, we just fit together. We're family. And uh, I don't mean that, by the way, like it's been long, like dreading. Uh, it's like that, that, that in-law that never leaves. Like, I'm not talking about that. I mean, it just feels like yesterday, but it also feels like it's been a while. And we've been here, and we're a part of that. And, but I remember when we first moved here, uh, the year we moved here, it was actually one of the worst winters in a long time here in Ohio. Now, in Maryland, when you would get two to three inches, everything shut down. Now, it snowed there. You would sometimes get four to five inches, but everything shuts down. School shut down. The jobs call off. Everything shuts down. Unless you have a plow, you're staying home. So we got here, and that very first like within the first week, it snowed. We did not see a blade of grass from the end of December all the way through April. Not a single blade of grass. This idea of sunny Mansfield was totally deceiving. <laughs> we thought it was supposed to be tropical or something. Because everybody said, welcome to sunny Mansfield. Well, I didn't know that was a joke until I got here. Well, we were heading to a basketball game. Our boys play basketball for Mansfield Christian School. And so we were headed to a basketball game, and we had no clue where we were going. We had no clue what was going on. All we knew was there was about three inches on the ground and more snow coming, and schools were not canceled. The games were not canceled. We realized very quickly that Ohioans are crazy. They'll drive in anything. They don't shut down about anything. And so, you know, there's a little bit of complaining going on, and we were like, well, why don't they don't shut down for anything, man. What is wrong with these people? Like, why would they drive in this stuff? And then they're taking kids to games. And so we were driving to a game. I can't remember if it was in Fredericktown or Loudonville, and the snow was coming down, and we had no clue really how to get there, and so we were following GPS. We were going on these back roads, nothing against Fredericktown or Loudonville. It just so happened that, you know, these back roads you have to get on. For us, it was brand new, a brand-new journey. And as we're driving, the snow gets so bad at some point that Alice and I kind of look at each other and there's an understanding that we have that we might have to turn around and go back. In fact, we kind of hinted at that and, and there was kind of an internal 
war going on as, as if I say, man, I don't know if we're going to make it like this. I mean, we've got our minivan. We don't have to drive in this kind of snow. We're supposed to stay home. And yet there's another side of me battling saying, you can't turn back. Like, if your boys don't show up at the game, you're becoming the laughing stop of this community. Like, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to be like, yeah, those people from Maryland don't know how to endure snow. And so we got to man up and get through this. we got to keep going. So eventually we get to the game. And on the way home, what should have taken us about 45 to 50 minutes took us like two hours. And I was like driving, and the snow was pelting. And you know how you had the lights on, the snow's coming, and just kind of mesmerizing? I was sweating as I was driving, looking out the window. And I'm like, I, what did we get ourselves into moving here? I mean, people are crazy. You know, can I tell you, spiritually, we can feel the same way, right? Where we begin the journey of faith with Christ, and then all of a sudden something happens, something difficult arises, something unexpected comes, and our instinct would be turn back. Yeah, I'll take Christ, but I don't know if I want to live this life fully in faith. I don't know if I want to trust God fully. I, I want Christ, I want eternal life, but I just feel like turning back, just keeping it simple. And we hit difficult times, and the question is, what is it that keeps us going? For Timothy, what is it that's going to keep him going in difficult and dark days? Well, Paul gives us the answer as to how we can keep going. What is the thing that helps us keep going when everything else seems, else seems to be failing? Take a look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 10. It says, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet them, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is a judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As we dive in, I want you to take a look at the contrast that is painted in verse 10. Notice Paul, changing subject, says, you, however, Timothy... Now, why is he saying that? Well, remember last week, back in chapter, beginning of chapter 3, he says, there are people who are coming in the last days that are lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. We see in that, we see humanism, we see materialism, and we see hedonism. There is a world that's all wrapped in self. Get yours. Whatever you want, it's all about you. He says, that's the way the world lives. But you, however, Timothy, you're to be different. We as Christians live differently. I, I say this all the time as a church. We want to be biblically faithful. We want to be, uh, we want to be countercultural yet culturally relevant. We want to live counterculturally. It's one of the things that we do. We live differently than the way everybody else lives. And so he says, you, however, Timothy, it's different for you. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, avoid those type of people that are self-centered. 
Then he comes and says, but you, however, this is what you do. This is how you live. Now, what is he saying? I want you to look at verse 14. We're going to work through this passage actually backwards. Look at verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, notice how he continues, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from the childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, Timothy, Remember the word of God in your life. Remember the scripture, the sacred writings that have been given to you. Here's how you're going to endure. Here's how you're going to live differently. You're going to consider and you're going to base your life on what the word of God says. And then he says, verse 16, all scriptures breathe out by God and is profitable for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. He says, Timothy, you start it by someone declaring to you sacred writings. Now for Timothy, he didn't have the New Testament. For him, it was the Old Testament. But certainly as, as the word spread, as the gospel spread, as the message of Jesus spread, they began to write. John wrote, and Mark, and Luke, and Paul, and Peter. In fact, Peter calls Paul's writing scripture, and Paul calls uh, Peter's writing scripture. And so we see the formulation of the New Testament happening very early on. But Timothy understood the scriptures. Why? Hey, remember in the beginning, chapter one, it was because of a godly mother and a godly grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who taught him the scriptures. And so Paul says, Timothy, remember that your faith journey began with somebody declaring to you the word of God. That's true for all of us. If you're a follower of Christ, your faith began by somebody bringing to you the word of God. Somebody brought to you the scriptures. We all began that way. The scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It could have been a, a parent. It could have been a grandparent. It could have been a friend. It could have been a coworker. It could have been an invitation to church. It could have been that you sat down and you began to study the Bible for yourself and you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Someone brought you the journey of the gospel of the pages of this book to you. That's how we all begin the journey. So he says, Timothy, if you want to endure, you actually keep connecting to the thing that started the journey in the first place. What started the journey was the Bible in your life, and what's going to continue the journey is the Bible in your life. And so the Bible becomes, he says, the answer to how we endure how we keep going. We need a dose of the scripture in our lives. Now, in our world, we have kind of three prevailing views of the Bible. Because how we view the, view the Bible will then dictate how we live our life. How we view the Bible will then dictate how we view Christ. And there are three really prevailing views that we find in our culture. First of all, there are people that would say the Bible is just another book. It's just another book. Uh, this is about 30% of our American culture today. 30% of Americans believe that the Bible is just another book. By the way, this has greatly increased. Uh, this is not always the way it's been, but 30% now believe the Bible is just another book. It's a book that's on the coffee table that may hold the marriages of certain people or the death certificates of certain people. Remember that when the big Bibles would sit in coffee tables and it would be like a family tree in there? Back in the day, it used to be a, an accepted document in a court of law the family Bible. Did you know that? So it used to be you find the family tree, so it, it meant something, but it's just, it's just another book. It's a book of fables, a book of stories. It's man-made. Maybe it has some precepts that are good, like love and truth, but in the end, it's just man-made. It's just another book written by man. Another group, and this is the most predominant group, would take it one step further and say the Bible is a good book. There's another 
prevailing view that says the Bible is a good book. This is the majority of Americans would say the Bible is a good book. And we know that because 90% of all Americans have a Bible in their home. By the way, a little side note, you know how many Bibles we have in our homes of those 90%? The average American family has 4.7 Bibles in their home. Now, I don't, how, I don't know how they got the 0.7. It's kind of interesting to me, but they just cut one in half or something. But we have 4.75 Bibles in the home. Now we got electronic devices and, and iPads and iPhones, right? And, and Android devices, and we can see the Bible right before us at any moment at our fingertips. But the predominant of Americans see the Bible in this form. They see the Bible as a good book. However, very few people actually read the Bible. A research just came out in 2019 from Barner Research, and they found that only 19% of Americans have ever read the Bible. Think about that. So we believe the Bible is a good book, but very few of us actually read the Bible. We are pro-Bible in our culture, but we're not pro-reading it. This has created a concern, by the way, in, in the church world, because this is the first time in American history where Bible literacy is being outperformed by Bible skepticism. For the first time in American history, there are more skeptics of the Bible than there are people that believe the Bible is God's word. So that means the third group is shrinking. And the third group are those who believe that the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. This is a shrinking reality. These are people that believe the Bible shapes their worldview. These are people that believe the Bible isn't just worth reading. It's something you feed on. It's something you meditate on. It's something you live life by. It is the manuscript of life. The Word of God, the Bible is the Word of God. This is a shrinking group. This is a group that we want to be as a church, a, a church built on the truth that the Word of God, the Bible is the Word of God. In fact, that's the argument that Paul makes to Timothy. Timothy, here's how you can trust the Bible. Here's how and why you need the Bible in your life, the dose of the Scripture constantly. Take a look at verse 16. This verse is a pinnacle of the theology of the Bible. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we read that verse, there are three things in there that it tells us as to why the Bible is worthwhile in your life, why the Bible is the word of God. Number one, the, the word of God is perfect. It's perfect. Take a look at the beginning of verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now think about this for a second. Breathing out, we all breathe out. Our words are formed actually by breathing out. Think about that. Breath goes across our vocal cords that we manipulate, we've learned to manipulate, to form the words that we speak. So every word that is spoken comes from a breath. And it says that God breathed the scriptures into existence. It is from God himself. The word of God is perfect. Now, I love this word, God breathed. It's a, a word that Paul makes up. You know, sometimes when I'm at home, I'll make up a word, and I tell my boys that geniuses make up their own words. Paul here makes up a word that shows up nowhere else in history. Like, he makes up a Greek word that doesn't show up in any writings. It's the word theopneustos. And it literally means God breathed. I love this because we, we use the ESV translation. It doesn't mean it's the best or anything. It's just the one we prefer. It's, it's literal and yet easy to understand. It, it says it well here. The way, the way they translate it, it says, all scriptures breathed out by God. That's the word. God breathed this word into existence. Now I want you to catch that. 
Other translations will use the word inspiration. Nothing wrong with that. Inspiration is breathing out. But the Bible isn't just inspiring. Catch this. The Bible is not just inspiring. Yes, it is inspiring, but it's not merely inspiring. What do I mean? You, you ever watch a movie and get inspired? Or you watch a game and you just want to tackle somebody like Chase Young? I remember when I was a youth and the first time I watched Rocky IV. Man, the Rocky movies are awesome. And Rocky IV is my favorite where he fights the Russian. And I remember the first time I was in high school, I watched the movie Rocky IV. And I got to tell you what I wanted to do as soon as the movie was over. I want to fight somebody. Like, I mean, you watch that movie. I'm left-handed, so I'm a southpaw. And I see Rocky, and I'm like, oh, man, who can I? Let's box, you know? I want to find somebody to box. I want to, I want to beat up a Russian, you know? If you have Russian descent, I don't want to fight you. I'm just saying, back when I was in high school, that's what I thought, right? So, so it's inspiring, right? It makes you want to do something. The Bible is inspiring. It should make us, call us to action. However, the Bible is deeper than just inspiring. The Bible isn't just inspiring. The Bible is inspired, meaning that every word, every point that it makes has a purpose to show us God. That means the Bible is not merely God-given. It's not merely God-blessed. It's not merely spirit-energized. It is God-breathed to us. Now, you might say, well, Dave, wait a minute. Didn't man, men write this book? You're right. Actually, Peter gives us the process. How could God breathe it and man write it? Well, God, Peter says it, 2 Peter chapter 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that word carried along. It's a boating term. In that day, they only had sailboats, no motorboats. And so if you were in the sea, you could steer the boat, but you could not control the wind. It was God who controlled the wind. God drove the wind, directed the wind, and carried the boat where it wanted to go. So the image is, the human authors certainly were active. The boaters are certainly not sleeping. They're active. But in the end, they were directed by the wind. These human authors sat down and they wrote in their own personalities, but they were driven by the breath of God. They were driven to write what they wrote as God carried them, but God used their own personality. So when I was studying Greek, for example, when you would come to interpret the gospel of John, everybody loved it. Why? Because John was a fisherman. John wasn't scholarly. His words are really easy. He uses words all the time over and over again, words like love and truth, and it's all over. So when you, when you translate the gospel of John, it was real easy. But then you translate it Romans. Paul was a scholar. I mean, Paul understood, he knew three languages. And Paul wrote a lot of the books, the letters of the Bible. And when you, when you study Romans, he uses all these technical terms that no one would understand. And so when you translate Romans, it's hard. Why? Because you've got an educated, scholarly man writing it. God used their personalities. They wrote differently. However, all that they wrote was what God wanted them to write as he carried them in the process. Forty authors over 2,000 years using dreams and visions and symbols and objects and, and then eyewitness accounts and God directs them. And then through history, those manuscripts written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, were then translated into Latin, which were then translated into German, which were then translated into English. And now you and I have copy of copies of the inspired word of God. This word, inspired by God, breathed out for us. It is perfect. 
It comes from the breath of God. Secondly, the Bible is profitable. The word of God is profitable. Not only is it perfect, but if it's perfect, it has to be profitable. So notice verse 16. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is not just air, it's profitable. Now when I read this, I can't help but to think back to when I was younger. And my mom had a rule. My dad died when I was eight, and so it was just my mom and I. And I grew up in a kind of a small row house and, um, in the city, and uh, the house wasn't very big. But my mom had some rules, and a lot of times she had to work, and so I would come home, and there were rules that I had, like sometimes I had to make a TV dinner, and I would have to do homework before I could go outside and play, and uh, there were all these rules I had to follow. And, and one of those rules was when my mom cooked, you had to eat everything on the plate, like, kids, you get the choice of what you want. No, no, no. Back in my day, whatever she put on that plate, you were eating. And there were a couple of things I really didn't like. I didn't like cauliflower. It was kind of like white broccoli. It's kind of weird to me. I like cauliflower now, but I didn't then. And I didn't like spinach. And for some reason, my mom would mix the two together and make this sign of, like, mixture. So the two things I hated, she would mix together. And it would be random, random, random times we would have it. And so whenever we would have it, I tried to outsmart my mom. How did I do that? Well, it would be on the plate, and I would put it in my mouth, and then they take the napkin and wipe it and put it in the napkin and then lay it down and pretend that I ate it. And so I was like, hey, can I get another napkin, Mom? And I just kept, and that's how I would eat it. Well, one day, we were having dinner together, and again, the kitchen's really small, and I could reach the trash can behind me. My mom turned away, and so I took the plate with the chicken breast and and spinach and cauliflower. And my mom was convinced that if it worked for Popeye the sailor man, it would work for me. She's like, do you want to be big and strong? You want to be a, a, strapping, you need, a strapping young man? You need to eat spinach and cauliflower. And I'm like, mom, I don't need this to become like Popeye. I don't want to be Popeye. It's weird. Like Your arm's out there. It's kind of weird. So I remember taking, as she turned away, I took the plate I flipped around real quick and dumped it in the trash can and turned around and go, Mom, that was so good. Thank you. Now, moms, you know, you have a way of knowing the truth, even when you deceived well. Like, moms have these laser beams that look into your soul that know you're lying. And my mom stared into my soul, and she looked at me and said, and she called me Davy, Davy, you're lying to me. You didn't eat this. I was like, oh, no, Mom, I ate it. I ate it. And she's like, you didn't eat this. You hate it. You wouldn't eat it that, in that swell of a gulp. You don't like cauliflower. You don't like broccoli and, or, or cauliflower and spinach. You didn't eat this. And so finally I was like, I need to fess this up. You're right, Mom. I threw it away. Now, I was thinking I was saved. Why? Because I threw it away. There's no more. My mom goes over and goes, you know the rule in this house is that you're going to eat what I put on your plate and this is good for you. I only give you things that are good for you. And she reached down in the trash can and she picked out the cauliflower and spinach and put it back on my plate and said, you will eat every drop of this. I told her, I said, mom, this is not good. Like, I could get diseases from this. So she said, no, no, no. No, you are going to, you're going to have your antibodies raised in your body so you can fight off infections. And I sat there and I had to mouth this stuff down. My mom was convinced it was good for me, in spite of what I thought. Here's the point. Paul says, Timothy, the word of God is perfect. And there are times where you might feel like you, you shouldn't be, you don't feel like diving in the scripture. You don't feel like it's appropriate or, or, or it's, it's, 
It applies to your situation. He says, listen, remember this. If the word of God is perfect, then all times and in all ways it's profitable. You need a dose of it. You need to eat it. You need to feed on it. Now, why is God's word profitable for you and I? First of all, it, it, is, it is scripture that leads us to salvation. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, and how from childhood you, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now notice this. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that. The scriptures doesn't, don't save us. The scriptures lead us to the one who does save us. The, the Bible is not what we worship. The Bible tells us who we worship. The Bible doesn't actually bring salvation. It brings us the message of salvation that comes only in Jesus Christ. What, what the Bible does is actually make us wise to understand that Christ is the answer. By the way, this is exactly what Jesus said to the religious leaders in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Notice that. You think in the scriptures you have eternal life. He says, no, no, it is these that bear witness of me. What's the purpose of the Bible? It tells us about Christ. It gives us the story of who Christ is. 1 Peter 1, 23, for you have not been born again, you've not been saved, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. It is not the word of God that is the seed, it is through the word of God that we get the seed that is Christ that transforms us. It is a scripture that saves us. Secondly, it is a scripture that also sanctifies us. What do I mean? The scripture that brings us into the journey is a scripture that grows us up in the journey, leads us through the journey. Notice he says it. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. You ever open the Bible, listen to a sermon, went to a small group, and you thought, man, they're only talking to me. This is directed at me. I know it. I've had people say that sometimes, and I tell them, yes, your spouse gave me a report on you, and I preached to you today. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've had this through this series where I'm like, I'm studying this, and I'm like, this is to me. Like, God, you're speaking to me. I'm going to preach this to myself, and I'm going to have everybody else watch it. I've had that. Why? Because God's word teaches us. It teaches us. It, it comes to our hearts and gives us instruction and in how to live. You, you, ever, you ever read the Bible, and you feel like it's correcting you? Like, man, it's trying to put you in the right direction, and you read it, and you're like, I don't really like this. Why? Because when you read it, sin kind of comes up in your life, or, or something you're doing wrong comes up, and it, it just surfaces in that moment, and you're like, man, it reproves me. You notice the word it corrects. By the way, that word means to set the bone. The, the, the Bible is able to take the brokenness of our lives and set it straight. It's like braces on teeth. The Bible is what sets us forward in life to go in the right way, in the right obedience, in the right faith. Notice it says, and for training in righteousness, it gives us the path of righteousness. In this we find how we should not live and how we should live. The word of God is perfect and the word of God is profitable, but the word of God is also powerful. Notice what he says next. It's powerful. It says, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love this because notice the repetition of the word complete and then equipped. Paul is doing a very, very bold thing here. He's saying, listen, the word of God will make you complete. He, he, will, he will, in your life, produce maturity, but he will also prepare you for the ministry that God has for you next. He will bring you to maturity, but he will also prepare you for the work that he has. 
The word there, literally complete, is the word artios, is where we get our word art. It has the idea that every piece that is necessary is there. You ever buy something and you have to put it together and all the pieces aren't there? How frustrating that is. Or worse yet, you ever go through a drive-thru and you order a cheeseburger and you get the cheeseburger and the cheeseburger isn't on it? Disaster. He, he says the word of God equips us for every good work. It, it prepares us for what he has and there's no parts that are missing in it. Everything we need for a life of godliness is found in the scriptures. Everything that we need to live life rightly, to endure rightly, is found in here. Let me ask you, are you engaging the word? Are you, in, are you flexing to what it says? You're here and you're like, Dave, I, I just need to have a better marriage. Dave, I just got some sin or habits. Dave, I don't, I don't, know, how, I don't know how to leave my kids. Like, are, if you're not in the book, how are you ever gonna do those things rightly? Right, it's the, the Bible that actually stirs in us how we ought to live, and then those things become, become common sense to us. We understand God's will in those. By the way, this is exactly what David wrote, a whole chapter in Psalm 119, and I love his words, because he's in a situation, he's, got, he's saying, God, what am I supposed to do? And then he comes to the word of God and says this, Psalm 119, 103, it says, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. What is it? Through your word, I get understanding as to how to live. Therefore, I hate every false way. I know the right way because your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. I don't know what God's plan is in this situation. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Now I know because I've been in your word. I know what you've called me to do and I live what you've called me to do and you lead my steps forward. I wanna ask you, are you spending time in the scriptures? If not, your faith is not gonna be built. In fact, if you're not in the word, I can almost guarantee you, I've met with a lot of people that have said, Dave, I just feel like quitting. And the number one question I ask, are you spending time in the scriptures? The answer is always no, always. There is a direct correlation to us giving up and not being people in the book. Are you in the scriptures? Are you seeking out what God's word says? Do you have a plan? And we talk about a plan. We have a plan for you on our app. You can follow a daily reading plan. You don't have to spend an hour in scripture reading. You don't have to spend a half an hour. You can spend 10 minutes reading the Bible every single day and it will continue to transform your life. If you read it and do what it says, it's amazing how it will transform you. Are you in the scriptures. By the way, if you're here and you're like, Dave, I'd like to have a devotional book, I will, I will hook you personally up with a devotional book. You're at Lexington. I'll have Pastor Ron hook you up with a devotional book. We, we will give you a devotional book. We will make sure that you have an opportunity to know what God's word says about your life, and it will transform you. Now, here's what Paul says. I want to work backwards here as we end, because Paul then gives examples as to why the Bible should be important. He gives them first and then makes the declaration, all scriptures breathed out by God is profitable. And I want to look at four ways that God's word is profitable in our life. Why should you have a dose of the scripture constantly? Why should you be feeding on the scriptures, meditating and studying it? Why do we, why do we say you should do that? Why is it constantly brought up to read the Bible? I want to show you why. First of all, the Bible reveals an honest picture of people's faith. Notice verse 10. Paul says, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. Paul was a good example. But there are many in the scripture that are bad examples of faith. People that struggled. 
David, who was a man after God's own heart, who sins. Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ, who denied Christ. Judas, who betrays him. You know what I get? When I read the scriptures, I'm encouraged by the faith struggles of other people. I see firsthand that not everybody has perfect faith, and it encourages me. In fact, you don't have to turn the page very, very far to find failure in the Scripture. And what it does is remind us that even in our failure, God can work out faith in us. God can build us in the midst of that. By the way, if I was, if I was Peter, and they were writing the New Testament, I would have said, no, 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 you're not writing that. Take that out. Don't write about me denying Jesus. I don't want anybody to know that. See, this book is not about the human authors, and they knew that. This is about Jesus, and so they were willing to say, yeah, I denied him, and yet look what happened. God restored him in a ministry that was phenomenal, reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of these faith struggles. It gives us a, an honest picture of people's faith. Secondly, it provides us with the fuel to endure difficulties. It provides you the fuel to endure difficulties. Notice verse 11. He says, My persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. By the way, many scholars believe that Timothy was an eyewitness. He was from Lystra. He was an eyewitness of Paul's sufferings there. This is in Paul's first missionary journey. You can read about this in Acts 13 and 14. Paul goes there, and you know what they do to him? He comes to share the gospel, and they kick him out and stone him. Can you imagine that? Welcome to the city of Mansfield, where we'll kick you out and stone you. Lystra did that to him. And Timothy, many, believe, many scholars believe, was an eyewitness of that and then followed Paul as a result of his faithfulness. So he says, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. At some point in your life, if you're desiring to live a godly life, there will be somebody, there will be something that goes against the grain of the journey. There will be something or someone that stands against you. That's going to happen. It says, if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Now, for you and I, we're not thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. We're not thrown into prison for being at church today. There are many places around the world where they are. We, we have partners around the world. We won't even name them so that, that they don't know who they are, but, but we know who they are, and you'll hear us talk about them at random. But it is illegal to share the gospel there. If you go outside of the church building, you could be arrested and thrown into prison. Here, we don't have that fear, but there's always obstacles, aren't there? There's always difficult obstacles that come in the way, and so it's the Bible that actually gives us the fuel to endure. It gives us the fuel to keep going. By the way, notice what Paul says in the middle of verse 11, or the end of verse 11. He's yet, he says, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now the term of this word, it's in the tense called an aorist tense, and literally it's the idea of some indefinite time it's happened. Some, at some point, the Lord has rescued him. But notice the word all. The implication that Paul is making is, not only is it now, but in the future, God will continue to rescue me. I am confident that as I walk through difficulties, as I face persecutions, as for Paul leading to death, the Lord will continue. He does rescue me at all times. The scripture gives him that power. The scripture gives them that ability to understand the Bible. In the Bible, we have something certain, solid, perfect, and unshakable in the midst of a vacillating world. The world's going around and around. We have something that's certain, solid, and firm. Something that says, don't quit. Keep going. Thirdly, the Bible leads us to embrace authentic living. Take a look at verse, uh, verse 12 there. He says, verse 13 actually, while evil people and imposters 
will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you learn and have firmly believed. He says, Timothy, they're going to be imposters and evil people, and they'll continue to go from bad to worse. It's only going to increase. Deceiving and deception. But you, you live in what you've learned. What is he saying? In Christ, through the scriptures, we're able to live an authentic life in a world of deception. And isn't it true? What's real anymore? Got fake news, fake people. What do we believe? He says the Bible actually builds authenticity in us. Why? Because our lives are laid bare before God. Now, I want you to think about this because we don't live in a world of authenticity, do we? Uh, you know, I'm shocked with the idea of a selfie, right? Back in my day, we didn't want to take pictures of ourselves. But now everybody's enthralled with taking pictures. Interesting, last month alone on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, there were over 170 million hashtags that were hashtag selfie. Hashtag 170 million in one month. Now, that, that's, the, that's not other hashtags. It's only the hashtag, hashtag selfie. 170 million hashtag selfies. In fact, this is kind of funny. The other day I was at a basketball game and I, I noticed there were some young ladies that were kind of sitting behind me and I turned around and I was just looking back and seeing who was there and I noticed they had a, their phone and the camera was facing me. Like the camera was pointing right at me. And I thought, man, this is a little odd. Are they taking a picture of me? Like this is kind of awkward. Why are they taking a picture of me? And at first I'm like, man, I, I mean, I wonder if they know me or they, they're trying to, you know, they want, are telling somebody, hey, here's Pastor Dave or something like that. And then I, there was a part of me that was like, man, do they think I'm some celebrity and they don't recognize me or something? And I'm, so I, I wonder, do I pose? Like, they could have asked me. I would have posed for them. Like, what do I do? Do I go like, hey, what's up? I, I don't know what I do in that moment. Like, do I pose or not? And then as I'm sitting there processing this, I'm realizing, while it looks like the camera's looking at me, they're actually taking a selfie. So they're holding it out, looking at me, but they're actually looking at themselves. And I'm like, oh. And it crushed my spirit. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They were taking a selfie. I mean, young people, let me tell you, back in our days, we didn't take selfies. The pictures you got were your school pictures that would be in the yearbook. You were stuck to the pictures they took. If you had a zit in our day before you took school pictures, you had two choices. You pop it or you go take it anyway. And it was a big decision you had to make whether you were going to do that. Today, you can filter everything, right? You, you can take that double chin and take it out. Man, you could pop that zit or make it go away. You can recolor your eyes. You can remove, or you can add to remove. You can take away the red eyes and everything you need. There's a filter for everything. Here's the problem. We live in a culture that lives with filters. And can I tell you something that's true? The more filtered our lives become, the less authentic we are. The more filtered our lives become, the less authentic we are. So what happens? When we get in the scriptures, you can't be filtered because it reveals to you who you are. And all of a sudden, you're reading it and you're laid bare before the word of God. And what happens? The filters are gone and now you're able to respond authentically. It actually calls us to authentic living. We should be the most authentic people on the planet. None of us here should be walking with masks on. We should be able to be real about our struggles, about our strifes, about our situations. Why? Because we have a God who's already loved us in spite of those things. A God who died on the cross for us in spite of those things. The Bible actually makes us authentic, not fake. We have filter-free faith in the scripture. 
And then lastly, it compels us to share its truth at all times and all seasons. Originally, when we planned this series, we were going to stop at the end of verse 16 and then next week pick up chapter 4. But I want to show you this because I think it actually flows. He says, the, the word of God is perfect, it's profitable, it's powerful. And then he says, I charge you, based upon this, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That one who is going to appear and he's going to judge all, his kingdom will come. He says, that one, preach the word. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now he's not just writing this to a pastor. He is calling the church to be faithful and preaching the word. That you and I have responsibility that the word of God that was breathed out of the breath of God breathe into us through the Holy Spirit as we read, meditate, and memorize the word now comes out of our breaths as it overtakes us. So what happens? God breathed, we breathe it in as we study it, we breathe it out as we share it. We breathe out the gospel message, the truth of what this book says, that, that the, the, the word of God is irresistible in its effect, meaning if I get what it says, I can't help but to then share it. It so overwhelms me, I can't help but to share the truth of what this word says. I speak boldly what I believe deeply. Let me ask you, are you the number one barrier to the word of God going forward. A, a little side note. We call ourselves a gospel-centered church. Many churches do. Gospel-centered has the idea that the gospel penetrates all that we do, every ministry, every situation, all that we do. This is why we're gospel-centered. That's why we preach and teach the Bible the way we do. That's why we put campuses the way we do, why we have a city center downtown, because the gospel penetrates everything. But can I tell you what's happening in our Christian world today? and this might not apply to all of us, but I follow what, what's happening in the church world, is this pendulum has swung, and all these churches are saying, well, we're gospel-centered. And what they mean by that is all they do is preach and teach the gospel. But can I tell you something, and that's good, right? We need churches preaching and teaching the gospel. The problem is, if all we do is preach or teach the gospel, and we never personally or corporately share the gospel, are we truly gospel-centered? Right? So, so here's the point. Can you be gospel-centered and not then share the gospel with people? What happens is all you do is talk about the gospel, but you don't actually live the gospel. And so that's why we do what we do as a church, why we have a city center, why we try to serve our city, why we love our city, why we are in Lexington and Shelby and around the world. Why do we do that? Because we want the gospel that we teach and preach and learn and grow in to now come out of us, to go to that neighbor that needs to hear it to go to that coworker that desperately needs to know the truth. And can I tell you what I found? The statistics will show that people aren't offended by it. They live in a world starving for authenticity. What would happen if we actually shared the truth with them? You know, most people are saying, well, Dave, what if they reject me? No, no, you know what? They actually, the statistics will show they won't reject you. They'll actually respect you for sharing it. You might say, well, Dave, I don't know how to share it. Listen, if you have a story of how Christ rescued you, you then have a story worth sharing. You don't have to know all this theology and everything. Yes, it's good to know those things, but if you have a story of how Christ w uh, took the scale off your eyes and, and, and penetrated your heart and rescued you, you can share that. You can say, let me tell you who I was. Let me tell you where Christ has brought me because he died for me and rose again for me, and you can have life in his name as well. If you can say that, you can share the gospel. You can preach the word. So he says, Timothy, preach the word. Now, as we end this morning, as we pray, we're going to end with a song that just kind of reflects this truth. But I want to ask you, maybe you're here this morning, and the truth 
about Jesus through this book hasn't penetrated your heart. And can I say this to you, maybe if you're here and you don't know Christ, if you're in Lexington and you don't know Christ, if you're listening online and you don't know Christ, can I tell you, could it be that the turning point in your life is when you stop seeking the God you want and start seeking the God who's revealed himself through these pages? What would happen if you stop seeking the God that you want and start seeking the God who's shown himself that you can know him, you can be transformed by him? Maybe you're here this morning and and, and you don't have a plan to read this book. You're not in it faithfully. Can I tell you, I can correlate weakness and failure and sin by people not being in this. Now, just because you read it doesn't mean you didn't live by it, but, but we read it first, then we say, God, help me live it. Help me reflect it. We want to be people that are grounded in the Word of God that then live out the Word of God as we share it. Maybe you're here and you've got family right now you can think of that need to know Christ. You've got, you've got Thanksgiving come up. What an opportunity to share. Not push it down their throat, but, but with articulation, share your story. Share what God has done in your life. By the way, we have our Christmas at Crossroads coming up. We have six services available. You know why we have six services? Because we're expecting every person to invite somebody, to invite them to come, and we're going to share with them the truth of what Christmas is all about. We hope you'll invite someone to share the glorious truth of this word. This word helps us endure. This word keeps us authentic. This word reminds us of our purpose. It gives us the stories of those who've walked the faith before us, not always easily, not always rightly. It gives us a reminder that we are called then to share. It compels us to go out and share its truth. Would you bow with me as we pray? God, we thank you for your word. God, your word is durable. It has outlasted all critics in history. It has survived all attempts to get rid of it. God, your word is marvelous in its, in its harmony. God, it, it's, it's unifying around one theme, and that theme is you, Jesus Christ. Every place, every turn, it points to you, the pinnacle of the story, that you, the God of the universe, came to earth and died on a cross and rose again, and you're coming again. Lord, your word points us to that truth. God, your word is miraculous. When we understand that truth, God, it penetrates our hearts. It transforms our lives. It makes we who are going in the wrong direction turn to go in the right direction and gives us a purpose to live for and gives us hope of the future. God, your word is, is fabulous in its preservation. God, for the centuries, it has been the book. It has been the book that has transformed it has been the book that has brought truth. It has been the book that has reproved and corrected. And it's been the, and the book that's trained in righteousness so that we may honor your name. It makes us complete. It makes us ready for every good work. Thank you for your word. God, we worship you and we praise you. Lord, if there's any here that maybe they need to have a plan, maybe they need to, maybe they need to share your gospel, maybe they need to reflect, breathe out what they've breathed in. God, we pray they would do that. God, thank you for your word. You spoke the word, and it came into being. You spoke the word, and it came through whom it authors, so that we could know you. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen. Listen to this song as we end.